Hello, everybody, and welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am joined today by our one and only So Mayor. Hello, So. How are you? Hi. Well, I'm back from my weird walks, um, being very inspired by recent podcasts to not be podcasting and be out in the world or thinking about the world a bit. Lovely. So thanks for that, Dan. Oh, no worries. It was, uh, it was like an absolute pleasure to talk to Owen. One place that I have been prompted to learn a bit more about by that discussion is a spinny, which mm-hmm. is a small wood near to where I live that I had always taken for granted as mm-hmm. a green space, but was actually planted after prefab housing was taken down in the 1980s, which had gone up after a bomb fell on the houses that had been there Mm -hmm. in like 1944 Mm -hmm. um and about 20 people who were living in those houses which were some of them were domestic some of them were rooming houses died mainly women Mm -hmm. um including a jewish family and it was decided when the prefab housing finally came down that an area for reflection and regrowth should be created rather than yeah. simply selling it to developers. Uh-huh. So that's the space I've been thinking with that space uh, oh, a lot. Wow. And it's really, it's quote unquote wild. It hasn't been planted or cultivated. So it's growing with things like cow parsley. There's also oh, some yeah. quite rare hedgerow flowers that are growing there because it's not manicured like a public park. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about today in particular, it's yeah, we're recording today on VE Day, the day the podcast is going live, mm-hmm. thinking about what other kinds of forms of commemoration, of peace, of yeah. anti-fascism, of the struggle yeah. uh, might look like. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a hard time, really, isn't it, um, as an anti-fascist, because there's this, I mean, I, I know I feel, obviously, the struggle to bring down the kind of fascist enemy was a massively important moment in the 20th century. But the way it's commemorated is becoming something slightly different and is no longer about kind of peaceableness and, and the desire to live in a world free from conflict and has become something uh, very, very different. And a lot of people who were, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, a lot of people who contributed to this struggle are still marginalised and still ignored. And one of the things that we've forgotten is how they began to be marginalised and ignored in the immediate aftermath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thinking back to our... Uh, recording with Theo Kiotis, the the disgraceful way in which the British government sold the communist partisans who they yeah. co-opted to you know to help the British forces yeah. were then um, shot um, with British collusion by yeah. the government of the generals, the right wing government in Greece, and that story holds in Poland and it also holds in other ways across uh, how Britain treated its imperial soldiers, the soldiers yeah. from its colonies um, in Bengal and Jamaica, uh, in North America. And the silencing of that, it's really frightening and sobering to see how the, the silencing of that internationalism, of that international peace project began yeah. in 1945. And that, yeah. as you say, that is one of the things that is being crushed by this jingoistic cooptation, which feels to me more like a nostalgia for some imagined mode of being at war. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, the kind of best of Britain blitz spirit narrative, yeah. which discounts so much of the experience of the people who suffered, of the yeah. people who fought, of the people who were excluded by that supposed very normative yeah. norming spirit. Yeah. There's there's a great movie, a French movie. Um, it, it's I think it's called just uh, the Indigenals in French, but it was translated as Days of Glory. Yeah. About um, North African soldiers um, who fought in the Free French Army and how they were even as they were liberating towns, they weren't allowed to go in the be in the liberating forces. They had to kind of hang back while the the actual quote unquote French soldiers were kind of led the way who'd done very little of the fighting. Um so I think I think we both would like to dedicate this episode to all people who struggled and perished in the anti fascist struggle of nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five. Try and keep their memory alive. I mean that's who I'd like to dedicate it to. Um I I hear you and I agree. Great shout for Rashid Bushareb's there's Antigen, Days of Glory, which is one of the few films in history to have actually also changed a government uh, action. It changed the laws about who was recognised as a French fighter and who was given a pension. Yeah. So and a brilliant film, an enormous achievement by yeah. Rashid Bouchereb. And perhaps also we can add to that to remember that things like the National Health Service yeah. uh, and the establishment of education up to 16 plus for all yeah. were intended as memories of all of those who yeah. participated in the struggle and perhaps those who participated and were not rewarded that it was meant to be a recognition of that and we've also forgotten that um yeah. in the mistreatment of the the nhs and the kind of slightly bullshit heroizing martyrdom narratives instead of just supplying what's needed yeah, I'd also like to dedicate this to my grandfather who fought in the Italian theatre. I won't, I won't go into too much detail, but there's he always used to tell this really funny anecdote. So he was, he was an officer, and after the war, when he was demobilising, the last thing his commanding officer said to him was, "Good job, Hedger. Whatever you do, don't vote Labour." Uh, which he then went home and proceeded to do. <laughs> yeah, down, down with the officer class. I think that, um, that would be the best tribute we can make to the anti yeah. struggle struggle yeah. and the officer, officer class everywhere, for sure. And um, that seems like a very generative um, way into saying that today's podcast interview is with an editor at one of the leading internationalist leftist presses Yay. Um, Verso whose name literally means the other side that uh -huh. uh, the, the anti-right the left uh, the yeah. opposite of recto and I had the great good fortune and honor really to talk to Jesse Kindig who is an editor at Verso's US office uh yeah. her recent titles on her list include hazel carby's imperial intimacies and andrea long Chu's females so titles that have really done a lot to shaken up what we think of as leftist writing to bring in the personal to mm -hmm. the political to remind us that the political is always personal and the personal is always political and jesse is in brooklyn which is one of the epicenters of yeah. covid19 
in the US, in an area where many um, histories of poor and immigrant communities are overlaid on each other. And it was very sobering to speak to her in that context and think about both where she is, what she's doing, and also how an internationalist left can and must persist mm-hmm. in light of the atomizing forces of populism, which responses to COVID seem to be doubling down on. Mm-hmm. So to, to round off before we pass over to you and Jesse, this is an episode dedicated to all of the forgotten strugglers against fascism, both during the war and today. This is the Solidarity episode. Welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. And I'm delighted to be in the know there, there, here, that's not here, with Jesse Kindig, who I believe is in New York or some version of New York. Hi, Jesse. Hello. Yes, it is some version of New York. I'm in Brooklyn specifically, but what, what kind of New York? I have no idea now. When was the last time that you left the borough? The last time I left the borough, which is what I am now calling uh, my apartment, was, I believe, yesterday I took the cat to the park on his leash. And there's a lot of crab apples and cherry trees blooming, which is very nice right now. That is one of the strangest things. We've been having an incredibly beautiful early spring here in what used to be London as well. Um, And it is now becoming Fox Den, hopefully. (laughs) But this explosive um, growth, incredibly beautiful blossom that feels at once almost ironic and, and incredibly welcome. Yeah, yeah, no, I feel the same. Um, it's, yeah, it's wonderful to see. I think if this happened in February uh, in New York when kind of the trash freezes on the streets and there's no leaves on the trees, it would be perhaps even worse than it already is. And how is your cat responding to lockdown? He is 100% into quarantine. He loves it um, because I'm home all of the time. Um, There's always someone here to feed him and to tend to him. Um, He gets to nest with us. He loves that. Um, And I also have time to take him to the park. So I think he's, he's the one that's benefiting from lockdown. But he's also been doing this thing where he's kind of taking care of the life of the household where, you know, if I don't want to get up in the morning uh, because it's too depressing, he will meow until he gets fed, you know, so he's like, he's like making sure everything happens. Like he wants, you know, he wants me to sit down and write so he can sit in my lap, you know, like he's actually what's making it possible. And as I will describe, you know, he's also our marketing strategy for the publishing house. So he's a very important figure in this podcast. I think that is what we all need right now, not only in terms of taking care of each other, but also cats on the internet. So how is your, how is your cat um, helping Verso keep its books out there in readers' minds? I should say it's not just my cat, it's all of the editor's cats and all of the staff's 
cats. Amazing. Um, yes, it's a, it's lovely. So I work at Verso Books, obviously, at an office in the UK and in the US, and I'm in the New York office. And what we've found during quarantine, obviously, is that happily for us, Verso has long had a very uh, active kind of online sales presence, which means that you can just buy books direct from our website. They can be shipped directly to you. You don't need to go through Amazon, although we would love it if you would go to all of the independent bookstores like Burley Fisher and all of our friends there, obviously. 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 But in lieu of that, um, there's still a way to get books to people, which I think is is really wonderful, especially since uh, in the U.S. at least, uh, Amazon has made books non-essential items. And so it takes like a month to get a book. Um, so we're all trying to experiment with, you know, how best we can get um get books to people. And so our direct sales and kind of the digital is the way that we have to do it. And so, you know, we've been kind of doing what, uh, what Instagram loves, which is cat photos. And so Benny, who is my cat, who's just come out now and is sniffing at the phone while we do this podcast. <laughs> Someone's ears were pricking up. Yes, he's, he's very involved now. Um, I've been putting, I've been putting books uh, on him and showing him minimum moralia and he has been uh the star of many a podcast and uh one of our other editors in brooklyn uh andy's two uh, wonderful cats i believe have recently been uh publicizing uh the new edition of vivian gornick's romance of american communism um and another book that i'm forgetting right now but if you check the verso instagram i believe it's full of cats is there a discussion <laughs> happening on the Verso Instagram about whether cats are natural or traditional leftists. I don't know because I do not have social media. So I, okay. our marketing manager and our publicist take screenshots and text them to me because I am a Luddite. So they're like, look, Benny is on the Instagram and then I am happy in my heart. So you, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I mean, we have a legit real strategy, but cats are definitely part of it. What is your feeling about cats politics? I'm I'm genuinely intrigued. Yeah, no. I mean, if we want to if we want to go there um and instead of publishing, sure. I mean, I think I mean, it's my feeling that cats are libertarians. They're kind of like libertarian mm -hmm. anarchists. You know, like they're the ones that are going to like eat all of the hummus in the cooperative kitchen and then like go take a bath and use all <laughs> of the water and be like, "No, this is my autonomous right as an individual." And so I don't know. I mean, I kind of I kind of think dogs are a little bit like fascist. They will like follow the strongest leader with the most food, but I'm not a dog person. So people will probably get very upset at me about that. And there's a whole Verso dog contingent. Like we have very wonderful dogs that come to the office every day, usually in, in Brooklyn. But, you know, I don't know that there's a, there's an animal that's a, it's a left animal. I think all mm. animals go anyway. Benny himself, I think is, is much more of a kind of like, he's a, he's one version of a punk yeah, I think cats are definitely solidly punk. And mm -hmm. how is how is publishing operating now that you're not in the office every day? Verso very much a, a community in a sense, um, mm -hmm. perhaps less hierarchical than some of the larger traditional publishers. So how is that decision making going? And how are you also staying hopeful about a future world in which there will be reading and writing and in which the the radical projects that Verso has reported on and, and helped support will still be ongoing? I mean, it's, it's a, such a good question. I mean, I, 
I mean, I think one thing is that the hit that the industry is taking now that people can't go to bookstores and are having a harder time buying books just shows you how innately social um, and collective reading and publishing actually are as projects. You know, I think we're so used to uh, reading alone or um, reading things online uh, where you don't have to actually go anywhere to, to get things except for like a digital space. Um, but I think there is something that, you know, I at least, it, it feels to me like material proof of what left publishing has always believed and writers have always believed, which is that, you know, reading and writing creates a public um, and now that that public is under lockdown, like it's much harder to do. So, I mean, that's just one general thought I've been having. Mm, given that that is, I think you're absolutely right, the situation, and that's definitely what inspires us as as bricks and mortar booksellers, as community builders. Um, we love our events and our customers and our conversations. What are you doing right now that is keeping that afloat right. for you or making... Mm -hmm versions of that that feel like they belong to this moment yeah I mean it, it's sad to not have the office I mean Verso Space in New York in particular has been like a meeting place for the left it's a big loft space uh, right above the East River in Brooklyn and so we regularly offer it to activist meetings to events from friends at uh, Jacobin Magazine friends at the DSA, Socialist Feminist Caucus, abortion rights groups, immigrants organizing groups, and plus one launch events, the Brooklyn Institute classes. So it has become this kind of center for the left in New York, where it's very, very hard to find free or very cheap meeting space for activist groups. So to the, the kind of loss of that is just one signal of the, you know, the mm. kind of loss of the networks in New York and in the city that have that have kind of kept the left uh, going. And what we're trying to do now is have as, you know, move as many of those conversations online as we can. So one thing that our publicist started doing in the social media sphere uh, is to kind of ask questions. And so put in responses and then list those as an Instagram story. And so I think one of the ones was after uh, Bernie Sanders conceded, conceded the the race we asked where people were putting their organizing efforts and like mm. all of those answers were kind of not all of them but some of them were posted as an instagram story so it was a nice kind of way to see who's talking we've also started doing uh online events and streaming events so there was just one uh, i believe with mike davis uh mm -hmm. for his new book set the night on fire about the radical history of la and a number of other publishers have been doing similar things and they've been really excellent online events. So that's one thing, you know, another are just kind of thinking about new ways to publish, you know, and there's some, I think there's always a kind of faith in publishing that you are, are reaching a readership that only sometimes you will hear back from. And so I'm working now with our friends at N plus one uh, magazine, literary magazine in Brooklyn to put together an ebook of some of their really excellent writing and dispatches from around the world during the pandemic. So that's something that we're going to offer off our website for like one ninety nine solidarity donation uh, to help support the magazine and the press as an ebook collection. And so that hopefully will reach, you know, when we do ebook collections, they get downloaded 10,000, 11,000 times and first of all, special reports on like on Me Too. We've done them on Corbyn. We've done them uh, anti-Semitism and labor in the UK. We've done them on the right to the city uh, and city planning and city politics and city design. And so those are other ways we have of getting words to people and trying to kind of build a public through through that. So we're working on that right now.
And it feels like Verso had, as you said, some of that structure in place already, that as a press, it had already been thinking intelligently about digital space as a space for organizing, as a space for access as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we've seen quite a lot during this crisis is who had already been thinking with the digital space, both its limitations and its possibilities, and who hadn't. And I'd love to hear a bit more about how Verso made that adaptation and what you're seeing from it, as well as responses to Instagram stories and numbers of mm-hmm. ebook downloads. Like what motivated the decision to reach out into that digital sphere and what outcomes or emerging outcomes have you seen from it as a publisher? Um, I mean, I'm not the best person to talk to uh, about that because I had kind of nothing to do with those decisions that were put in place before I came, but I think that they are, we're really seeing the fruits of them now. I believe it was um, our managing directors and Jake Stevens in the Brooklyn office who were really pushing for Versa to have a digital presence and to think really expansively about publishing in the digital age. And so Versa spent believe over the last five or six years, um, putting together the kind of website model that we have now where we can't, are able um, to sell directly to people who want to buy the books, uh, which is something that it's hard for other booksellers to do and setting that up. We've also been working on an ongoing project of digitizing the full Versa backlist, which, you know, is 50 years wow. of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing project. And so hopefully at some point we'll be able to offer something like a digital subscription, like a library subscription to JSTOR or something. So people can have full access to the backlist, which is this amazing archive of Western Marxism, literary and cultural theory, like writings on feminism, like it, it, it would be an amazing thing to have. Uh, or a kind of book club model. Mm -hmm. So we're working on making that possible uh, for people. You know, that's one example of how Verso has tried to think about what publishing means, what reading means, um, Mm. when more and more of it is being done online. And I think also the, the kind of launch and upkeep of the Verso blog is another kind of form of that. You know, there's a number of excellent like literary news journalists, uh, online magazines, you know. So for us to be able to um, not replicate or duplicate what they're doing, but have our kind of our authors uh, respond in different ways to world events in the way that we as a publisher respond has been really, really wonderful to have as well. I can't wait for the Verso archive to be online digitally and to be able to access that material and share it. But I'm also interested about in the future, in a sense, publishing is always a future-oriented activity, an activity of imagining a future. The manuscript now will be published in a different time, but it feels that that has been radically affected, which books are going to be published, and how is that impacting you as an editor and, and affecting the writers that you're working with or the writing that you're being offered? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we've shifted some books around, you know, all of the publishers have, but well, a few things. I mean, I, I have commissioned two books in the last two weeks, I think, and versus commissioned a kind of cluster of pamphlets uh, related to the crisis. And I can speak about one of 
them in particular. I'm really delighted to be working on a book um, with Dean Spade, who is an amazing uh, activist and radical legal professor in Seattle, who's been writing and organizing around the strategy and politics and theory of mutual aid uh, for like over a decade. And Dean himself founded the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, um, which gives free legal services to trans, intersex, queer folks, uh, and also works on the collective model and non-hierarchical kind of governance model, among many, many other projects that he's involved in. And so Dean gave an interview on Democracy Now! about mutual aid with Miriam Kaba, who's a very well-known and very excellent amazing um, prison abolition, anti-racist activist here uh, in New York, and uh, and has worked with several other projects. And so Dean is going to write up his kind of like decade of activism and teaching on mutual aid as a short pamphlet and the idea as uh, argument why we need mutual aid, why it matters, why it kind of overlapping crises that we now live in, both pandemic and disasters like Hurricane Maria Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, but also the kind of ongoing disaster of mass incarceration, um, of gender violence, et cetera. Um, So the book is to kind of argue that mutual aid is not just a survival tactic, but also a kind of politics, a way of re-envisioning and remaking the Worlds that can happen in conjunction with uh, social movement and be very transformative uh, and bring different kinds of structural change. And so the, the first half of the book will be that um, and go through a number of different examples. And the second half will be like literally how to, like here are, um, how do you do this as an organization? Mm-hmm. How do you start to address issues of governance, hierarchy, care? And then how do you do this as an individual? How do you pre- prevent burnout, et cetera? And so what we're going to do publishing-wise with this book Dean's writing it now, um, kind of as we're getting ready, we're announcing it as a drop-in title so that that is we're putting it on our fall 2020 list, but we are getting ready to kind of publish it almost as soon as it comes in as an ebook and make it available as an ebook at a reduced price so that it can get to activists, it can get to communities um, that are trying to figure out what is mutual aid right now, uh, and then we will follow up in, in print as soon as we're able. So that's one kind of publishing model that we're working with and I can't think of another book um, or another time in Verso's history when we've released an ebook first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we may have done but but not in my time ever so so you know that's one thing that we're doing and so I think that will be a really exciting kind of project and give the book kind of two two separate lives mm-hmm. um, which I think is is another really interesting thing and really good thing. It sounds incredibly um, urgent and necessary because I think so many people are drawn to the concept of mutual aid without necessarily having had an opportunity to learn its history and learn its practices and feel perhaps nervous about entering into it and need exactly that kind of guidance that's not just a checklist but a story and puts a set of instructions in a context. So, you know, we'll obviously be sharing the link as as soon as it's out there, but also look forward to the print book to having something on the shelf to save um and it makes me think about practical Mm -hmm. questions like what's happening with your printers right now what's happening with your distributors that's something we're really conscious of uh at burley fisher what are the Mm -hmm. working restrictions and regulations that the book industry is facing in 
New York State or in the US. Can you tell us a bit about that? We've just posted this morning on the Verso blog list that will continually update of all of the safety guidelines and restrictions for our warehouses from Penguin Random House which is our U.S. distributor, North American distributor, and Marston's in the U.K. So we are very concerned um, about the workers' health and safety in the warehouses, but they are still working at, at kind of reduced capacity. So books are still going out to accounts who are buying them. So we are very lucky in that in that sense. But we, you know, for publicists, for galleys that are going out, for getting books to authors, right now we're trying to work digitally as much as possible, um, send out galleys as PDFs. So. so it's sort of an intensification of what had been happening for the last decades anyway, of making use of the digital while still believing that the print book will hopefully survive. Yeah, and I and I think that it will. You know, when ebooks first came on market, there was mm-hmm. you know, a number of think pieces and hot takes about the death of the print book and the rise of the Kindle, et cetera, and what we actually found that people continued to love to buy books, um, that there, there was something really meaningful about the book as an object, the book as an artifact, about the experience of reading a book, about the experiences you know better than I do, maybe of going to a bookstore um, and being able to browse the shelves, mm-hmm. which is not like browsing a digital database uh, in any sense. And so, no, that's not something that I worry about. What I do worry about is the kind of ecology very fragile ecology that has sustained book publishing, uh, particularly in the United States, which I know best. You know, I this is somewhat colloquial, but I was at the Montreal Book Fair um, several months ago and was really fascinated and impressed um, by um, Quebec book publishing. First, Canada funds the arts mm-hmm. in a much higher um, or at all um, which is different than than the U.S. Um, And so there's a very robust kind of funding scheme for uh, publishing. And in Quebec in particular as a province, uh, which is very interested in protecting uh, French language in North America, there's a ton of funding for Quebec publishers. And what that's meant is there was a law passed, I believe, in the 80s um, that mandated that all libraries and schools in Quebec needed to buy books uh from Quebec owned and operated bookstores um and they had to buy them from at least three to prevent a monopoly and what this did was bring like kind of guaranteed revenue uh to booksellers mm. who are also buying from Quebec publishers and what it effectively means is that mm-hmm. they've kept Amazon out of Quebec, which is amazing. And now they're talking about doing the same for audiobooks and ebooks, which they haven't done yet, right? Um, and so what it's meant in Montreal um, is you have this kind of amazing, and I'm sure that there are problems with it, and I'm just waxing poetic about it. But to me, coming from the United States, it was amazing. There's this ecology of really very smart, wonderful left literary publishers that exist this province that are doing amazing work and amazing publishing, doing really experimental, uh, left, uh, really, really interesting, really good publishing. And so I was talking to some friends at Luke's, which is uh, one of the radical left houses in Quebec, about how they were doing during the crisis. And they were just telling me, we're, you know, we're lucky, we're getting, there's enough government money to support us, we're going to keep going, mm. which is not the case, you know, in the United States. You know, I think a model like that is really an inspiring thing to see because what it what it's meant also is that there is like a direct kind of uh, communion between independent booksellers and independent publishers. And to have that be funded mm. and seen as a kind of social good 
I think allows each to survive and thrive in these really wonderful ways and allows for um, better publishing, it allows for really high quality of literary publishing, uh, and it also builds a reading public. So like reading, I think, is where people spend most of their money in Quebec, like more than uh, on theater tickets, more than on going to see movies, whatever. So it's kind of made it a part of the culture in a way that doesn't exist here um, in the United States. And I think thinking about publishing in that way, coming out of this crisis, we have the opportunity to kind of rethink what it looks like to work in publishing as workers. Um, I think it means that we have the opportunity to rethink what publishing is. And there's a lot of a lot of parts of social life where this is true, but publishing is one of them. Like, would it actually mean to support independent selling and publishing um, now that mm. it's recognized that the state actually we do need state funding for all parts of social life, which Americans like to pretend isn't true. Um, you know, that's one model. I have so many questions and observations we could have an hour about the question of social funding state funding for the arts just alone and about the montreal book scene or just montreal like people kept handing me coffee and wine and feminist novels it was my favorite place in the world it does feel like an opportunity to mention that my second favorite bookstore uh, after Bailey Fisher is Lugelion, the feminist uh-huh. uh, bilingual bookstore in Montreal, which sells both new books and secondhand books and has a loan scheme and events. Yep. So lucky, lucky yep. Montrealers. But I did want to ask about New York and about New York State, which is being hit incredibly hard by this crisis and which is or has traditionally been one of the culture making centers um, and culture participation centers in in the US and whether anything had emerged even from state government recognizing the place of culture, of cultures in, uh, in making New York what it is and supporting the continuation of that. I mean, that's like a much longer story about the relationship between the city and the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the city has traditionally, because of the way that money and politics work in America, the city has been, New York City has been starved by the state. So state budgets are set. There's a city budget, obviously, but the state directs all of the state taxes and then the federal money. And so, you know, the rest of the state does not want to pay taxes for New York City. And so in New York City, as a resident here, I pay not only federal income tax, but New York state tax. Uh, And then we also have a New York City tax because the city cannot get enough revenue from the state to support its infrastructure and its population. And so the city itself, you know, it was bankrupt in the 70s. The city itself has always needed money uh, and has always needed more money than it's been given by the state and by the federal government. And it is, you know, it's the biggest city in the country before the the pandemic. Um, The subway system was crisis and now Mm. it's in serious crisis and our colleagues in the UK would make fun of us because we were always late for meetings but it really would the signals of the subway system haven't been changed since the 1930s right this is insane (laughs) Um, so like some days it would take me 20 minutes to get to work some days it would take me an hour and a half and you just kind of never knew and so think about running an economy um, where your workers can't get to work and Mm. that's kind of what what the subway has been, right? And so um, that's just one example of the like kind of breaking point at which the city already was pre-pandemic. So what happens after this is anyone's guess. You know, I don't, I have friends who work in film and cinematography here. Um, 
you know, all the theaters are shut, the museums are shut, the galleries are shut. Um, and so I don't know, actually, if there's been any federal money set aside for the arts per se. I don't know what percentage of that is going to come to New York. I know that there hasn't yet been any uh, set aside for publishing or for the media, which is not surprising uh, from this administration, though I think there are kind of media and publishing lobbyists looking to get money set aside for that industry and in the way mm -hmm. that the like U.S. airline industry has been bailed out. So, no, we're kind of in it with everybody else, as far as I know right now. And so I think everyone, especially kind of on the left, is is thinking about these questions of like, what does it mean to publish? What does it mean to make art? How do we get to, how do we get art to an audience? We can't actually join together. What does it look like? You know, and that could be really productive and we could have amazing things come out of it. Um, but I think it will look very different. What kind of scenarios do you allow yourself to imagine in the moments of the roller coaster where it seems like, oh, this could be not an opportunity, which seems like always such a capitalist word, but uh, mm -hmm. as you said, a, a breaking point out of which new formations could emerge. I'm I'm sort of thinking almost as an editor, in a way, what kind of writing or what kind of book projects might you dream or imagine coming towards you but also in your practice um as an editor as a writer as a citizen what do you allow yourself to imagine if you do i mean for me as an editor i want to keep publishing what i have been publishing um in some ways you know i i'm not that interested in a in a hot take on on coronavirus of which i know there will be many um you know, I have, as I said, signed books that I feel like are really important uh, interventionist activist books that can do a lot of good right now, like Dean Spade's Mutual Aid book um, that will come out in the next few months. Um, I've also signed a book um, from Ben Kunkel on capitalism and crisis that is actually thinking about what it means to live through this break, but how the kind of strategy of growth and language and ideology of capital growth has us to this particular kind of breaking point um, mm -hmm. with a future that doesn't just fall back into the capitalist growth and language, but also like unfolding continual social misery and crisis, what that kind of future would look like. So I'm interested for sure in signing those books that kind of answer that question in many different ways, you know, politically, economically, artistically, and aesthetically. Um, you know, I think as, a, as an editor, what I've been seeing for the last two or three years are ways that I see writers trying to trying to tell things in different ways. There's been a kind of recognition that social theories that we had to describe capitalism, the political, kind of no longer serve. You know, whether that's kind of a particular form of Marxism, state funding for institutions, whether that is a kind of narrative um, that no longer serves or a particular academic language that no longer seems to tell the things that we want to tell. So I think that there's been ways for a long time uh, where writers and authors have been trying to figure out how to talk about what they want to talk about um, and that has been in a very like kind of technical way happened uh, through craft and through, through language. So mm -hmm. uh, one book that I think is a good example of this is Hazel Carby's Imperial Intimacies. Uh, she's a scholar of African-American and African diaspora studies uh, at Yale, very well-known Black feminist Marxist scholar. And she, she worked on the book for over a decade and arguably a lifetime, um, but she wanted to 
talk about how empire works and how people live within the kind of world that imperialism has created. And she also wanted to tell it through her story and her family's story. So the book is an exploration of her ancestors in Jamaica who were the enslaved and slave owners, she finds out, uh, as well as her uh, English roots in Wales. And, you know, the book is partially about her also uh, growing up and being told that you couldn't be Black and British at the same time. And she mm -hmm. was, of course, right? Um, so the book is her writing into that space. And so what you have is, a, and, and she did a tremendous amount of historical and literary research. So what this book is, is a kind of W.G. Sebald kind of collection of the book itself is very much like an archive. It has photographs, it has images, it has texts, it has pieces of the archive that we've reprinted in the book. But then she tells this narrative through her family history. So we go to working class Wales with her ancestors, or we, you know, we follow her as she finds, you know, she, she traces her steps back to um, her enslaved ancestors in Jamaica and goes to Jamaica, visits her, her father's family. And so all of this is to say that the book is this kind of beautiful exploration, but in a very non-academic form and also not in a kind of traditional memoir form. Like the book itself is trying to make a new form for what it wants to tell. Mm. Um, and I think for her, what she found was that she could not tell the story that she wanted to either as an academic monograph or as a straight memoir. And she needed to do it in this particular way that played with time that back and forth between her as a girl and her as the writer now, uh, between her and the archive and her great, great aunt, you know, walking around Bristol, being asked to imagine colonialism through new bananas that are for sale on the street and the lantern shows that are showing uh, the West Indies, etc. So, you know, that's one example of books that I think have been working towards a moment like this, um, because we've been living in unfolding crises for years and mm -hmm. years and years. And so I'm interested in keeping on publishing those kinds of books that I think are trying to find ways to create how we tell now and help us kind of see how we live now. And I think that that is um, one of the most exciting things for me about being an editor is being able to find those projects um, and bring them into the world. So I don't think that will change. My next question was going to be a reading recommendation for this moment um, as, as we wait for Dean Spade's book. But I can't <laughs> think of a better recommendation than Hazel Corby's Imperial Intimacies, not only because here in the UK right now we're seeing the unfolding or the continued unfolding of that imperial history through the asymmetrical impact of COVID-19 on BAME health service workers who's mm -hmm. um, are disproportionately dying of the virus and not being well protected and cared for and I think Carby's book lays in some of the some of the background of course there's you know a vast range of stories to tell but thinking about the intimate way that we live with empire seems like a very important thing to do right now in in the mm -hmm. scenario so thank you for that recommendation which i second now i do have a an obverse question with which we've been mm -hmm. ending our podcast which is the what we're calling the toilet paper book challenge which is <laughs> to nominate <laughs> the first book that's going to go when uh utilities run out 
And we've had many, many and varied responses, some of which hypothetical, some of which are real, some of which have been vindictive, some of which have deleted the tender intimacy uh, of introducing text to your body. So (laughs) (laughs) you you have a range of possibilities. Or maybe as an editor, you feel that all books have a right not to be used as toilet paper. No, I don't think that's true. I think, (laughs) what am I thinking? I mean... That is a very interesting question. So I, you know, one of my answers would be like, what about just getting a bidet and preserving the books Sure, is one of my answers. And, you know, I'm looking at my bookshelves now. I mean, I don't want any of my books to leave my bookshelf, (laughs) Um, you know, but if it's a question about like what book feels the most intimate to me in that sense, um, that's a separate question, but I mean, I don't know. You might, I might choose something thematic like James Joyce, you know, sure. for that activity. Who, who knows? Um, that's definitely an ample supply as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Maybe that's going to be my answer. Um, because I think, you know, a salute to the scatological prose of, uh, James Joyce. Yeah, or maybe, yeah, or maybe, you know, Jean Genet in a kind of tribute to the the necessary, the abject, mm-hmm. um, the kind of crust punkness, <laughs> or maybe Chris Deva, if we're actually talking about the abject, you know, that would be a good art project. Genet would have approved of the choice, whereas Chris Deva wouldn't. Does right, that seem right, fair? but you know... But his character is so much better. Yeah. Um, yes, that does seem fair. Yeah. Okay. I think that's, that's my answer. Janae or Kathy Acker or maybe even James Joyce would have saluted um, mm-hmm. the turn to life and the body, shall we say, and the incorporation of text into that. Whereas I'd have to, I'm going to think about whether Chris Taver would now, but... Yeah. Well, actually, here's a really good answer. One of um, one of our authors, Andrea Long Chu, wrote in uh, Females, which is another excellent book to read. Um, but wrote about an art, yeah, wrote about an art project um, that an artist here did in New York, where all of these men were telling her she really needed to read Infinite Jazz, David Foster Wallace book. So she actually did eat it, uh, and then like part of it is also her like describing shitting the book and so maybe that although i don't have a copy of infinite jest in my house so that's like it's a non-answer i just thought that every apartment in brooklyn came pre-furnished the copy of infinite jest no, i adamantly do not have one <laughs> for this moment because <laughs> yes for the, for this moment that's a particular kind of brooklyn apartment i'm just gonna say um well on on which mise en abime uh <laughs> <laughs> it's i the one copy that you could not use is the copy that Andrea Longchu used in her project. Um, oh, no, this wasn't Andrea's project. Oh, she was writing about writing an artist about who project. did this project. That, right. That copy. But as a, as a hypothetical theme, I think it's a brilliant place to not end this conversation, but open it out to our listeners. Um, drop us a line on podcast.birdiefisherbooks.com as ever to order some Verso books in the UK or to let us know what you're thinking. In the case of book proposals, we will suggest that you send them directly to Verso. (laughs) (laughs) All that remains is for me to say an enormous thank you to Jesse for joining us this afternoon on the isolation station. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Wow. So I feel like I've learned quite a bit over the last half hour or so, especially the political persuasions of cats and dogs. How uh, does your dog feel about that? Should we be conducting praxis upon our animals? Um, should we free the dogs to join the pack? I don't know. Who knows? Um, well, it it is testament to domestication and how we begin unlearning domestication and rewilding. Yeah. I think that ecological question fits with Verso's leftist position. Yeah. But, you know, also just good to know. And yeah. in future episodes, <laughs> we will, of course, be discussing the political persuasions of gerbils, goldfish, owls, axolotls, owls, <laughs> <laughs> and yet, badgers. Badgers, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was it was so nice to hear a voice from across the pond, um, just from such a fantastic publisher that does such important work for the global left. Totally, a shout and a shout out to any uh, listeners in the US. We are we are with you in facing yeah. government incompetence, poor leadership, mm-hmm. racism, propaganda, and we yeah we stand in solidarity with the people yeah. in the US who are suffering. Yeah, uh, under that, and and indeed everywhere. Yeah, yeah, solidarity with all, um, unless you're uh, some kind of right wing bigot, then we are not in solidarity with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, uh, I think me and So will sign off. <laughs> Just waiting for the Badger Liberation yeah, the, to troll us on Twitter. The the BLS. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, one more time, this episode goes out to all involved in anti-fascist struggles and all who have been marginalised. We hear your stories and we see you and our fists are clenched on this special day in your honour. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were So Mayer and Dan Fuller, joined by Jesse Kindig from Verso USA. This show is produced by Dan Fuller with music by Anthony Hurley and again made possible by you guys' continued support. We really appreciate it and we love you all. Thanks.